The Week in Doubt, religious news stories from a skeptical perspective, random musings on everything from pop culture to politics, and even audio documentaries on weird and interesting topics like Krampus and the history of the holidays. The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Hey everyone, yeah, it's me, Phil, the host of The Week in Doubt. <laughs> so let's see how much complaining I can do before we actually begin the show. Uh, it's been quite a week. So someone I knew fairly well. We were friends, but not super close. Uh, we went to high school together, used to play D&D back in the day. And because my family did work for his family on a fairly regular basis... Uh, I still saw him somewhat often. Out of respect for the person, their family, I don't want to say too much. But yeah, they actually uh, passed away on my birthday, which was the 8th of this past week. And their name was also Phil, which is, you know, it's kind of strange. Um, and like I was saying, we, we weren't super close. We didn't hang out all the time. But there was always this connection there because of the old days and because of our families knowing each other. And we're also into a lot of the same stuff. So when we did see each other, we would often have some pretty good conversations. And I found out about his passing right before I watched that new Joker movie. So getting dark news right before seeing a dark movie, it kind of all put me in a, in a really weird headspace. On a separate note, in retrospect, uh, I did think that was a really good movie. It had a really gritty kind of Scorsese feel. Uh, probably one of the most powerful films I've seen in a while. But there's a strange pall kind of hanging over the movie that maybe added to the dark tone of it. You know, as I sat through it, knowing that... Uh, someone that I knew had passed away. Uh, whenever you find out someone you know has passed, it's really heavy, a really surreal feeling. Um, you guys know me and how long-winded I can be and how I like to kind of wax philosophical. <laughs> it was probably a lot I could say about how I view the disturbing news of this person's passing as a non-believer, someone with a secular worldview. But you never know if someone who knew this person or family member is listening, and they might be believers or they might need to believe to help them get through. And so I don't want to turn this person's passing into show fodder and use it as an excuse to really get into how I view mortality, etc. as an atheist. Uh, wasn't even sure if I was going to bring it up, to be honest, and I'm still not sure if it was the right thing to do. But it's understandably been on my mind. But yeah, all the more tragic given how relatively young the person was. I hate talking about my age for some reason. But they were around the same age as me, uh, around that early to mid-40s range. And it should go without saying, I'm laughing self-deprecatingly at myself for my own weird age hang-ups. Uh, not at this person's passing, obviously. Unfortunately, I'm more in like the mid-40s range, but I think he may have been a year or two younger than me. Let's see, what other grim news did I receive? Oh yeah, my dog, the little chihuahua I always mention on the show, is on the road to congestive heart failure. Uh, I can't believe how time flies. I got her when she was 10 weeks old, and now she's 10 years old. She's had a heart murmur since she was a puppy, probably some kind of congenital thing. 
But now it's finally started catching up with her. The murmur's gotten a lot worse. I think the vet said it was like a, on a scale from one to six, it was like a four. And she's constantly doing this whistling, coughing, and gagging thing, apparently because of uh, the backup of heart fluid uh, building up in her lungs. The doctor put her on enalapril, which is, uh, I think my father's actually on enalapril. It's a heart medicine they give the people, too. She's on that for now, but she has to go for an ultrasound with a veterinary cardiologist on the 24th. So we can try to find out exactly what's going on and what kind of medication she really should be on. And that is apparently going to cost at least $600. Uh, but, you know, it, it has to be done. And relatively speaking, you know, I know that cost price isn't that bad. I know people who have spent thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, on uh, vet bills. Uh, but let's see, what other crappy developments? Oh yeah, I think I mentioned, <laughs> isn't this cherry on the show, uh, that I'm apparently building a tolerance, the SSRI, the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor I'm on again, and, and my, uh, my chronic headaches have been returning again. Uh, so I saw uh, the doctor this past week, and she prescribed me something new, but now I'm stuck in limbo as I wait to see if my insurance will authorize it or not, you know, b before I can actually fill it. Oh yeah, then last night or the night before, I updated the 2012 Mac Mini I used to record the show to Mac OS Catalina, only to discover it now runs slow as molasses and no longer runs 32-bit apps, including QuickTime Pro, which I've always used to prepare uh, video and audio clips for the show. I was going to downgrade back to Mojave. You gotta love the, the pretentious names Apple gives all its OS updates. It used to be Animals. I'm trying to say, I mean, I say pretentious, but I guess they're kind of, they're kind of cool. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think which I like better. The the old animal OS names are these, you know, California region, uh, regional names or whatever. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's an easy way to downgrade to Mojave because I don't really make time machine backups. And I think you would need, uh, you would need to have a backup ready. And also, you need to, like, create a bootable drive that has Mojave on it. I was beginning to feel a little self-conscious about going off on some tech digression, but, but why not? Let's nerd out. Uh, QuickTime Pro, I mean, I really loved it, but I, I felt like its, its days were numbered, you know, for a long time now. Uh, it's, it's really weird because QuickTime, you still see mentioned in iTunes updates all the time, especially if you have like a PC, you'll notice there's constantly these annoying <laughs> updates for QuickTime and iTunes. Um, so apparently QuickTime is still a thing and they left the, the basic QuickTime player alone. You can still use that, but you can't use QuickTime Pro. And uh, it's such a simple, but also such a convenient and effective program. I would just, you know, drag or open a file I wanted to prep for the show into there. Let's say maybe it was a two-hour long podcast that I just wanted to grab like a two-minute segment from. I'd drag the little handles in to the point where I had the clip isolated. 
uh, you know, I'd trim off the excess and I'd export it as both a video and as uh, an audio clip. And there I'd have my the files I needed for both the, the audio and uh, video versions of the podcast. And I was afraid that I was going to have to use something as bloated and clunky as iMovie to, you know, edit these tiny little clips for the show. And iMovie is just crazy. It can temporarily eat up like 30 gigs of, of disk space while you're working on a, uh, a project. Absolutely insane. And, and so I thought I'd have to do something ludicrous like that in order to prep files for the show. But uh, last night I was messing around with different little apps you can get from the App Store. And I think I found a fairly fairly convenient way to do what I used to do with Quick with QuickTime Pro, but it now involves two apps instead of just one app. Um, I, I don't get what it is. I, I'm not a, a coder. I don't write software code, so I don't know if it, if it was really necessary for them for some reason I can't figure out to get rid of the ability for the software to run 32-bit apps, or if it's just something they thought, oh, 32-bit, so passe, you know, let's get rid of it. Uh, I mean, they could have like a little bit of code that allows a 32-bit app to work properly like it did on past iterations of Mac OS. You know, when you, cl when you click on it, just some little piece of backup software that allow old antiquated programs to run. I don't know. You got me. But I guess there's a lot of complaints with Catalina. And one of the main reasons I updated or upgraded to it is that you guys probably know I went to school for graphic design, even though I'm slaving away in the family construction business. And I still, you know, I use my design skills in quotes uh, to, you know, create thumbnails for the show and, you know, podcast art and also for the occasional freelance project. And I was psyched because apparently with Catalina, there's this thing called Sidecar that lets you use your iPad as a kind of artist tablet. And it communicates directly with your Mac. But, you know, I went through all the, the trouble of upgrading my 2012 Mac Mini. It turns out the Sidecar feature only applies to newer Macs. So... You know, whatever, man. And also, I heard that people are having trouble with Catalina and certain Adobe programs, which I also don't like hearing as someone who has a Creative Cloud, um, I almost said prescription, subscription, and who, uh, you know, does some design work. But I have to say, one of the new features I do like about Catalina is they finally allow you to access files on your iOS devices directly from the Finder. Uh, and I think that's because they kind of had to do that because they ixnade iTunes. Um, iTunes has now been kind of fragmented into several applications. Now, instead of iTunes, you have a music app, a podcast app, and an Apple TV app. And this caught my attention because I'll sometimes use my iPad to actually snag uh, clips for the show. I have this really old app that I'm surprised has never been booted off of the App Store. Maybe it has, but I just still have access because it's on my device. And it has a really generic name. I think it's like 
just download or download plus or something like that or i download and it's an orange and white icon but it allows you to go to a site play a video and download the clip so when i see something interesting when i'm on youtube or right wing watch or raw story or whatever i'll copy the link open it up in that app and i'll download the video file and what I used to do is, you know, you used to have to go into iTunes, uh, connect your iOS device, click on it, and then choose file sharing, find the app, and then drag the files out of it onto your desktop. Now, and, and this kind of reminds me of back in the day of the older iPods, like remember the iPod Classic? When your iPod would actually appear on your desktop as an external drive, basically. Um, so now your, your iPad or your iPhone, um, your iPod Touch, whatever, will actually appear in the sidebar of a finder window on your desktop. So you can, right from your desktop, you can go in and, uh, and open, access one of your iOS devices and, and grab files from apps. So there's that silver lining. But enough tech talk and enough vetching. Is that it? Is that a, a Yiddish term? <laughs> enough complaining. Uh, let's move on to something slightly less dark and depressing, corrections. So a YouTube viewer let me know that there's an error in that little Demogorgon documentary I did. Apparently Demogorgon doesn't appear in the Dungeons and Dragons text Deities and Demigods. He was actually in one of the old monster manuals. And you guys know how I am when I get something wrong. I have to make sure I issue a correction. There was also something else that bugged me about that episode. Not a mistake exactly, but I worded something kind of awkward or clumsily. So when I upload this episode, I'll probably yank the audio and video versions of that Demogorgon episode and re-upload uh, re a revised version at some point. And the message was pretty funny. The person started by saying something to the effect of, you seem pretty smart, but you effed up. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so is this the beginning of the show now? <laughs> On to the first story. So you may have seen this one elsewhere. I'm a little late to the party. It's a clip of Pat Robertson talking sense, kinda, but he actually criticizes Donald Trump regarding his controversial military withdrawal from Syria. Uh, to be honest, I'm not all that well versed on the intricacies of the situation in Syria. I know obviously some have wanted us out of there for a while and think we never should have gone in. Others are rightfully concerned about the fate of the Kurds in the wake of our withdrawal and whether that vacuum will allow ISIS to gain a foothold and flourish again. And actually, I'm recording this on a Sunday. It's a Sunday the 13th which doesn't sound nearly as frightening as Friday the 13th. But uh, anyway, wow, that was a lame joke. But, um, but th they were saying on the news this morning that the, the situation is rapidly deteriorating in Syria and uh, that the Kurds have said uh, that the, they'll never forget um, this betrayal by America. So no matter what stance you take on our withdrawal from Syria, I think it's safe to say things are going to get quite messy. 
but to be honest, I, I just found it refreshing to hear a televangelist actually criticize Trump. We know how much he's courted the evangelical right and all the praise they've heaped on him, even insisting he's been, you know, divinely chosen by God, etc., yeah, the grab by the pussy guy. And in fairness to Pat Robertson, never thought I'd say that, I think this isn't the first time he's displayed a surprising measure of reason and dared to criticize Trump. Uh, but here's that clip. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to say right now, I am absolutely appalled that the United States is going to betray those democratic forces in northern Syria that we possibly are going to allow the Turkish to come in against the Kurds. The Erdogan is a thug. He has taken control of his country as a dictator. He is a strong leader, and a, to say he's an ally of America is nonsense. He is in for himself. And the president who allowed Khashoggi to be cut in pieces uh, without any repercussions whatsoever is now allowing the Christians and the Kurds to be massacred by the Turks. And I believe, and I want to say this with great uh, solemnity, the president of the United States is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven if he permits this to happen. So, yeah, he's criticizing Trump, which is fun and cathartic, but he's still Pat Robertson, and he ends up, you know, invoking the mandate of heaven. So he says Trump is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven, suggesting that he actually already has it. So yeah, crazy. The fact that people think Donald Trump was chosen by God, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around, even if I believed in God. Still, Donald Trump. But I guess in a weird way, it would be kind of in keeping with biblical tradition. Weren't David and Solomon also corrupt womanizers? He's flawed just like the great kings of the Bible. He's still a great man, just a big old sweet pumpkin. What the hell is wrong with me? Okay, anyway, on to the next story. Some of you may have heard of E.W. Jackson. According to Wikipedia, he's a conservative politician, Protestant minister, and a lawyer, trifecta, in Virginia. So I came across this audio clip from his show where he talks about how evil or amoral people on the left are. I think first he goes on this uh, anti-political correctness tear. Um, but here we go. If you disagree with anything the left says, you are racist, you are homophobic, you are Islamophobic, you are a hater, you are a bigot. Oh, let's not forget the latest one. You are transphobic. Yeah, there's the, you know, that's, that's the newest one now. You're transphobic. If, if you don't want, as one writer said recently, if you don't want a bearded man walking into the girl's bathroom behind your granddaughter or daughter, you are transphobic. So why would a trans woman have a beard? I mean, there might be some weird exception out there, but isn't the goal of most trans women to look feminine? And if it was a woman who's transitioning to a man, she might have a beard, but then she'd probably be in the men's bathroom and not standing behind your granddaughter or whatever. So I'm a very left-leaning person, but I've said on the show before how, you know, even I think political correctness can be taken too far sometimes. But I think this uh, this transphobia stuff is you know just ugly and ridiculous. Um, 
I, I think trans people just want to fit in and use the damn bathroom. They're not out there stalking your kids, you know what I mean? But this is what they do, folks. They do this to shut you down, to shut you up. Uh, they do this to try to marginalize you. They do this to try to damage your reputation. They do this to try to convince others that you're a person not worthy of being heard because you're full of hatred and anger and, and bitterness and da- you're dangerous, you're violent, and, and you know, all, all of this garbage that they attribute to you if you don't agree with them. And look, you know, and, and folks, look, they, they monitor, I'm sure, this, this entire network. They certainly monitor my program. I was about to say paranoid much, but he's kind of got a point. I'm covering him right now. <laughs> yeah, people on the left uh, do enjoy harvesting clips from this guy, you know, listening to him and waiting for him to say something stupid because he does say lots of uh, hateful and bigoted, stupid crap. Uh, plenty of fodder for shows like mine. And, and, and I may be... I, I may be letting out information that, that would be best kept from them, but I think they know this anyway. In their heart of hearts, they know this anyway. You know, we really are at a political disadvantage in dealing with the left. You know why? Because they have no morals, and we answer to God. Case in point, what a stupid and ugly thing to say. Uh, people on the left have no morals, and people on his side do because they answer to God. And we can flip that right around and say, we don't need fear of God or dogmatic religious beliefs or literal belief in superstitious faith claims to be good people. We try to be good people because we believe in the merits of solidarity, compassion, you know, humanity, altruism. And, uh, I think it's an, you know, I think I've said this a lot on the show. I think from an evolutionary perspective, it's a mixed bag. We have kind of a dual nature. I think we evolved to be social animals who it's in our nature to be compassionate and altruistic. And at the same time, yeah. I don't want to sugarcoat things too much. We pro- we also evolved with a capacity for tribalism and violence. But I think there is something in most people, uh, you know, probably partly nature, partly nurture, where as members of a social species, we feel compelled to try to be quote unquote good and to behave morally and to try to treat others as we'd like to be treated. And there's that idea of the golden rule that far predates Christianity. Could go back to the Code of Hammurabi, back to ancient Egypt. And I think part of being a human animal is being aware of that inner conflict between those two sides of our nature, that we evolved both to be compassionate and altruistic, uh, and at the same time with a capacity for violence and tribalism. And we have to do our best to make sure that those, figuratively speaking, better angels of our being went out, you know? And it's funny, this is a common trope that atheists are immoral. And it's funny because I think it's often the case, and I think this was the case with me, that a lot of people become non-believers. It's not just that they, you know, they don't believe because they're... Uh, 
these superstitious religious faith claims are at loggerheads with their reason. You know, they don't see the evidence. But also it's often because they take moral issue with some of the things that are in religion. Some of the bigotry and barbarism. Um, and I think there's some inspirational stuff in the Bible. I think there's some moving and powerful and useful stories and symbolism, etc. But there is also a lot of anachronistic uh, barbarism, etc. And so I think contrary to what E.W. Jackson is implying or saying here, uh, many atheists or non-believers object to religion on moral grounds. And I would even say I feel a kind of moral obligation to the truth. And so I think believing in something that isn't true because it pacifies you or whatever is, uh, in a sense, immoral. And that puts us at a political disadvantage because it means that they will do anything and we will not. They will lie, steal, cheat, deceive, I dare say, commit murder if they think they can get away with it. And I'm not saying every leftist is like this, but I'm saying when you come from a philosophy that teaches that there is no absolute morality, that there's no absolute good or evil, right or wrong, then the ends justify the means. I mean, that's exactly what Marx taught, right? Well, I'm not a political science expert, and I don't really give a crap about Karl Marx. But uh, uh, once again, you know, not to apply everything I just said before I played the end of the clip to uh, what he just said. The idea that people on the left are immoral and capable of anything because uh, they don't have religion is ridiculous. And in one part, you know, it's ridiculous because there's plenty of people on the left who are uh, religious. There's plenty of um, kind of left-leaning Christian social activists, uh, think nuns on the bus, that type of thing. And I believe there's a long history of Christian social activism in the, uh, the black community and even see it a lot with uh, Catholicism, etc. And better minds than mine have, you know, made the point before that the fact that they think you need God to be moral, that it's a belief in God standing between you raping and murdering or whatever, is actually, that's pretty scary. You know what I mean? I sincerely hope it's not the case that the only thing keeping you from going out into the street and committing atrocities is uh, some superstitious belief in a higher power. And, you know, I have to add the obligatory caveat that technically I like to think of myself as an agnostic atheist. Hopefully Steve McRae's not listening. <laughs> just, just kidding, Steve. Um, and who knows? There could, you know, for the sake of argument, be some higher power out there. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, once again, for the sake of argument, if there is, I don't think it's one the same with, uh, <clears throat> with the being found in your man-made holy book. And there seemed to be a fair bit of projection there. He's talking about how people on the left, because they don't have any morals, they will lie, they will steal, they will murder, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, look who's in the White House. I'm not saying Trump is responsible for murder, but the, the lying and the stealing. I mean, the guy's a, a, a poster boy for 
kind of amoral narcissism and doing whatever it takes to get your own way. But I've got one more clip to play for you guys. And it's actually just like a two minute long clip of or from an appearance Christian apologist William Lane Craig recently made on Justin Brierley's uh, unbelievable podcast. And the other guest was actually Sir Roger Penrose. Uh, I don't know what his exact title is. Is he a uh, is he a physicist? Yeah, it looks like he's a mathematical physicist, mathematician, and philosopher of science. It was actually a pretty good conversation, and I sometimes um, give Justin Brierley a lot of shit, for lack of a, a less crude uh, turn of phrase, because of the seeming bias that sometimes uh, you know appears to be present on his show. Briley is uh, a devout Christian. Uh, he doesn't try to hide that. But the aim of his show is to take a high-profile believer and a, often a high-profile skeptic or, you know, secular atheist type and, uh, you know, to be kind of an objective moderator and let them slug it out in a fairly civil fashion, albeit. And uh, sometimes, though, it does seem like his bias kind of gets through. But um, often, I have to admit that episodes of Unbelievable are actually rather interesting. They have some good guests on there. And for people like myself who like to or who used to like to back during the golden age of, uh, of it, you know, watch atheist versus theist debates, for people on quote-unquote, our side, you know, the, the secular types, the uh, atheists or whatever. To us, it's almost like William Lane Craig is this notorious figure. You know, he was this prominent Christian apologist who used to take on the likes of Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, etc., etc. And I don't have the same disdain for him that I have, say, for Dinesh D'Souza, but, uh, and this might sound almost like atheist heresy, you know, but I actually think he's kind of likable sometimes in his own way, you know? But um, certainly in the heat of a debate, there's times where I found myself kind of loathing him because it, he seemed like he could sometimes be, you know, engage in intellectual dishonesty and kind of engage in all sorts of intellectual contortionist tricks or gymnastics in order to score a point for uh, team belief or whatever, you know what I mean? And that used to really kind of get under my skin. But when you listen to the guy being interviewed, uh, sometimes it's, it's, there's actually something kind of likable about him. And I've heard him talk before, candidly, about his own history of how he became a believer. And there's something kind of, you know sympathetic uh, that I can relate to when you listen to him talk about the kind of existential angst he experienced as a young person. But I'll play this clip. Yes. I, interestingly, my background sounds rather similar to Roger's in terms <laughs> of my upbringing. I think you were actually more involved in church activities <laughs> than I was. Um, my parents were at best nominal uh, Christians, but we never attended church. Um, but when I became a teenager, I began to ask what I call the big questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? 
What's the meaning of my existence? And as I looked at the universe, I could see no meaning to my existence. I knew that humanity would eventually perish um, in the heat death of the universe, and I could see no reason for its existence, for the existence of human beings, and in particular for my existence. And I simply faced an inevitable death in which I would cease to exist. And I'll just pause it there for a moment. And what really struck me about that is that that's almost exactly, you know, a description of how I felt as a teenager wrestling with those big existential questions, trying to figure out what the meaning of it all was, facing this absolutely horrible but seemingly plausible idea that there may not be anything out there. We're basically just animated meat that, you know, whose final destination is a, a hole in the ground. Um, and I've discussed on the show before at length uh, how being an atheist doesn't mean that you have to hold such, you know, a, a starkly negative or nihilistic worldview. And that I think that the mind is pretty resilient and you eventually become a nerd to, to some degree to that kind of thing. And even though you're an atheist and you lack a belief in a higher power or something like that, you can eventually still find a, a sense of meaning in life again. Uh, and life can seem rich and vital. It doesn't have to be this kind of dark, nightmarish existential crisis just because you lack religious belief. Um, but it's fine. A lot of people do have to kind of go through that kind of dark night of the soul, to, to borrow a religious turn of phrase. Um, so it sounds like both William Lane Craig and I both went through that, except the difference is I felt such a stubborn devotion to the truth that I want to know what was empirically true, even if I didn't necessarily like the answer. I didn't want to just pacify myself with religion to, you know, use it as a kind of bomb for that existential dread. Whereas William Lane Craig turned to religion, you know? And so for me, it, were, it was these big, deep existential philosophical questions that eventually, through the witness of a girl who sat in front of me in my high school German class, led me to faith in Christ. And as a Christian, to finally get to your question, mm -hmm. Justin, it's important for me to have a synoptic worldview. Mm. That is to say, a worldview that includes a Christian perspective on all of the different facets of uh, human learning. Uh, whether it be the sciences, literature, uh, art, um, psychology, history, philosophy, and the deep metaphysical questions. So you're correct. When I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the Kalam cosmological argument under John Hick at the University of Birmingham, one of the things I began to explore was whether there might not be some sort of scientific confirmation for um, the claim of the Kalam cosmological argument that the universe began to exist. And I was startled to see the degree to which um, contemporary astrophysics did support this premise in no small part because of Professor Penrose's mm. work uh, on the singularity theorems. So that is an important part of my 
worldview as a Christian. So I thought that was actually rather revealing. He talks about the need to have a quote-unquote synoptic view, to have uh, everything kind of harmonized through a Christian lens. And I think that gives you some kind of insight to, you know, when he's doing those cognitive gymnastics to try to win you know, score a point for team religion or whatever, you know what I mean? Is that he is, he is, I think he's, he seems to be admitting that he does engage in some kind of cognitive gymnastics where he has to try to harmonize uh, everything through a Christian lens. And I'm actually not saying that to be negative. As I was saying, you know, I'm listening to this guy talking when he's being interviewed. I actually, I don't think he's a bad guy. He's kind of interesting to listen to. But as someone who has watched so many of his debates, it's kind of like, aha, like a, you know, a, a revealing, it's kind of revealing or interesting to hear him admit how he intentionally tries to view the sciences, to view everything uh, through a Christian lens. Which in a way, to be fair, I guess it's kind of understandable. He is a Christian, just like some might argue that someone like myself might be trying to view everything, whether they're fully cognizant of it or not, through a secular lens. But I think all of us should try to be as objective as possible and to try to see the truth for the truth and see facts for facts without uh, things being clouded by our own bias. But with that being said, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not very active there. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to help support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash doubt and help support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. So who knows? You know, Hopefully someday I can turn this into my day job. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, thanks, and until next time. 